Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Today it seems like we are hopelessly divided, but division and conflict have been the default setting of civilization. It's what wars, shifting alliances, and even relational conflict is all about. So why, even after thousands of years of evolution, of death, recrimination, and unhappiness, is this still true? Perhaps the answer lies in our human desire to try and understand or make sense of the world. In science or mathematics, there is often one right answer. Insight, experimentation, and hard work often produces that eureka moment. In man's understanding of the world and of each other, that doesn't happen. So we strive, we seek, and we hope to find peace, to come to terms with some answer that explains it all. But life, physical and spiritual, and even social and political, is not like physics. There is no one right answer. So we each seek our own solace, our own paradise, not just as a geographical place, but as a temporal place where all of the puzzle pieces of life come together to create our own ideal picture, even as we then try and match it to someplace else on the globe. This human struggle lies at the heart of Pico Iyer's new book, The Half-Known Life. Pico Iyer is the acclaimed and best-selling author of more than a dozen books of exploration. His essays appear regularly. His TED Talks have been viewed more than 11 million times, and he divides his time between Japan and California. It is my honor to welcome Pico Iyer back to this program to talk about The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. Pico, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a real delight to talk to you again, Jeff. And I've got to say, that introduction was brilliant. You summarized my book and my way of seeing better than I could in 200 pages. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much. That's very sweet. You know, there, there's this cliche around that, that I'm sure we've all seen that says, you know, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. And yet the irony of that, it seems to me, and I was thinking about this with respect to your book, is that also at the end of that comfort zone comes stress and anxiety and confusion and all the things that ultimately lead to so many of the problems that we face in society today and those divisions that we talk about. Yes, but I I love the fact that you said there's no answer. And I think the challenge of life is living without answerlessness. I heard that Pope Francis, when he prays, doesn't pray for an answer to his questions, but just for the courage and strength to live without them. And so I do think that stress is always going to be part of our lives. And we have to find our paradise or our calm and the clarity in the middle of that stress. Life is never going to get easy, but that doesn't mean we have to be defeated. And this book came out of the pandemic and all of us were living in this state of great uncertainty. And yet I was thinking, I bet many other people were thinking, how can I find what I need and and calm and, and beauty and wonder even in this difficult moment? That sense of living with that uncertainty, certainly everything you say is is absolutely true. But is that something that we need to learn? Is that something that that is counterintuitive to human nature in some respects? I think we really do need to learn it because the pandemic underlined what is always the case, because we're always living in a state of uncertainty. You can't tell me what's going to happen tomorrow. I can't tell you what's going to happen tonight. Uh, And we're at the mercy of much greater forces, whether it's flooding or forest fire or pandemic. So, uh, yes, I, I think uncertainty, I think, is my home. 
And so I want to make it as warm and comfortable as possible. I almost think of reality as like our spouse, sometimes difficult, occasionally impossible, but it's the only partner we have with which to make a better life. And in in dealing with that ambiguity and dealing with that uncertainty, Talk a little bit about how we begin to learn how to do that. And then and, and more importantly, the role that, that geography, and I don't mean literally geography, but but the role that a sense of place and where we are plays in coming to understand this. Let me say two things. I really appreciated what you said in the beginning of your introduction about dividedness, which is the big problem in the world. We're more connected than ever before, thanks to technology, but we are more divided locally and nationally and internationally. And I almost think our ideas divide us and our emotions and actions bring us together. If you or I walking down the street this afternoon and we see somebody fall, we'll reach down and help her. We're not thinking, is she black or white? Is she Democrat or Republican? Is she Muslim or Christian? We're just reaching out at that human level. Same when we go to a doctor. We don't care what her religion is. We just want a prescription. And I've been very lucky to spend, as you know, 48 years with the Dalai Lama, who I think of as a as a doctor of the mind in some ways. And I think the great thing that he offers is partly he has such a difficult life um, he's been separated from his homeland for 63 years. The government of the largest nation on earth calls him an evil spirit. And yet every moment, um, he's famous, rightly, for his constant laugh and his infectious smile and his robust confidence. And it's a reminder that in the midst of difficulty, one can actually um, have real, real optimism and, and, and joy, as he does. So I'm less interested in the geographical places than in the places within. I think paradise is probably a way of seeing and and therefore a way of being. And it's interesting that in the pandemic, at a time when I couldn't go anywhere, that's when I was thinking back on my 48 years of travel and and feeling that paradise had to be found right here, right now. But that paradise, even the temporal idea of it, comes from our lived experience and certainly a sense of place and places that we've been or the place where we are has a role in that. It does. Uh, Certain places move us the way certain places, uh, certain people move us. And certain places have charisma. As you you know, in this book, I describe Jerusalem and Varanasi. And when I go to Jerusalem, I'm not a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew. And yet I feel this magnetic pull and it moves me to tears. And every morning, in the pre-dawn dark, I walk down one of those narrow, barely paved lanes to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and I'll sit in front of a little bare cave, really, just with a rocky ledge, single flickering candle, and I'll be brought almost to tears by that. So you're absolutely right. There are places everywhere that pull us out of ourselves and remind us of something greater than ourselves, which we don't have to name or explain, but it's wonderful to be reminded of that. And it's wonderful that there are so many spots like that. And what role does history play in that and knowing the history of those places? Because that's part of the connection, it seems. So I'd say two things. What I'm responding to when I'm in that little chapel in Jerusalem is indeed probably 2,000 years of worship and devotion. And it builds this kind of solid wall that really shakes the heart. On the other hand, Jerusalem's a good example. <laughs> History is mostly about misery and warfare and, and conflict. And as you know, I begin this book almost most with great lines from the Nobel Prize winning uh, Irish poet Seamus Heaney. 
And when he saw Nelson Mandela released from prison after 27 years, Seamus Heaney dared to commit these lines, once in a lifetime, hope and history rhyme. And I think that was his way of saying history always leaves us with scars and memories that we can't erase, individually and collectively. But a life without hope is no life at all. So I think we have to have hope in spite of history. As you say, a knowledge of history deepens our appreciation of Egypt or Greece or China. But that's not really what's touching us, I think. We're we're being moved by something beyond textbooks and ideas. Talk a little more about that in terms of the nexus between hope and this temporal idea of paradise. Yes. Um, Hope, I've read, Vaclav Havel said, isn't the conviction that there'll be a happy ending because uh, there often isn't a happy ending and all our lives end in death, of course, and we lose loved ones along the way. But hope is just the belief that there um, is some sense of logic or order at work in the world. And one reason I call this book The Half-Known Life, you know, I remember when I was in my 20s, I was a know-it-all. You know, I'd been trained to really cherish knowledge and I could, I thought I was in control of every day. I could anticipate everything that's going to happen. And the older I get, the more I see, as I said, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, I'm at the mercy of much larger forces. And that in many ways is liberation. Uh, I'm grateful for that because I think life has much richer and more interesting plans for me than I have for it. And so I suppose I've become a believer in in humility and we don't know where our hope will come from. And, and when we set out in a certain direction, it's often not the right direction, but we can't give up on the sense that hope will come often in some unexpected way. In a way, it's that that dichotomy between knowledge on the one hand, and we certainly garner a lot of knowledge through living, through experience, and and wisdom on the other, which doesn't necessarily come with that knowledge. It does sometimes, but not always. Perfect. Exactly. As ever, you you hit it on, on, on the head. And I think when you mentioned dividedness, I feel that's a result of my saying, I know better than you. I know more than you. Um, I know the one true way and you, Jeff, don't. Um, knowledge, you know, instantly when you say you're in possession of knowledge, often it implies that other people aren't. But wisdom is is a great collective human thing that I think potentially we all share. And as you say, it really begins where knowledge leaves off. And all of us know in this age of information, when we're bombarded with so many facts, <laughs> we have more and more knowledge and less and less wisdom. Because the more we're looking at small screens, the harder it is to see the larger perspective. And I think wisdom is about that larger perspective. And knowledge is often about the little pieces of data we collect. Talk about the notion of paradise as, as you define it in the half-known life and what specifically you talk about. Yeah, such a good question. And of course, as you know, I've been traveling constantly for 48 years. So I've been lucky enough to visit many of those places that all the travel agents' posters tell us are paradise, Bali and Tahiti and the Seychelles and Antarctica. And often when I go to those places, they are paradisal. But I'm reminded it's paradise for me visiting for two weeks probably real life for the person living there. For the local, it's not paradise at all. And they're likely to say, oh, I know what that place called paradise is. It's it's California, <laughs> the land of sunshine and possibility. So paradise is often a projection. 
And I think when occasionally I go to a place which really does feel very calm and self-contained, like uh, certain of the kingdoms up in the Himalaya mountains, I think if this really is paradise, what do I have to bring to it? I can only bring corruption. I'm I'm the serpent in the garden. If it's a very happy place, I'm probably a disruptive influence. And I just think that mortals and perfection don't usually go in the same sentence. The paradise is something in our heads, but actually, if we open our eyes, it's something all around us. And so, as you know, in this book, I do a strange thing, which is I seek out paradise in war zones and places of conflict from Iran and North Korea to Sri Lanka and Kashmir and Belfast, because I think a paradise or a sense of hope and possibility that can be found in one of those places is one I can trust. It exists in the middle of real life, in the face of difficulty, even in the face of death. Um, And I do find, I think, moments of great hope in just about everywhere. I visit. So my notion of paradise isn't a sunny beach. It's something that can be found even in the middle of the shadows and storms of life. Because that darkness in so many ways is inspiring and and is a progenitor of hope. I mean, lying on the sunny beach, nice as it may be, can sometimes lead to complacency or whatever that sunny beach might represent. Exactly. You really say it Well, I think in Iran, I heard that they say it's only when it's dark you can see the stars. And I think most of us have variations on that understanding. I mean, that it's the darkness that makes us appreciate the light. I'm a great believer in seasons for that reason, because I think if every day is sunny, we start taking things for granted and we actually don't appreciate the beauty as much as we might. And that's how the pandemic was a season for taking nothing for granted. And suddenly... I started appreciating things. I'd take walks on the road behind my mother's house and I'd realize this place right here is as beautiful as anything I travel across the world to see. And my parents have lived on that property more than 50 years, but I'd never walked to the end of the road, 20 minutes away till pandemic necessitated it. And then suddenly I thought, why, why leave? This is all I need. Talk about the spiritual element in all of this and the role that it plays. I think in my experience, because I spend a lot of time with monks, that, well, the spiritual life is, is, an, is a rich word for the inner life. And it's, as we were saying, about having the clarity to live in a world that doesn't offer solutions. And I found that the people who are most grounded in a single faith are most open to another faith. And that's why in my book, the two central figures, almost are His Holiness the Dalai Lama, whom I've known for 48 years, and Thomas Merton. And I'm very moved that Thomas Merton, this very devout Cistercian monk, at the end of his life, uh, traveled across to Asia at last. And he came to Sri Lanka, and he was standing in front of two Buddhas. And this Catholic monk, looking at the Buddhas, said he found everything he'd been seeking in life. This was his realization. This was all that he'd been looking for. And then four days later, he died. And on the way to Sri Lanka, he'd had conversations with the Dalai Lama, probably the most visible and respected Buddhist teacher in the world. And the Dalai Lama delivers long lectures on the Gospels to groups of Christians in England. And tears come to his eyes when he talks about the parable of the mustard seed, for example. So here's an example of two people who know who they are and therefore have the confidence to look beyond divisions. A a Catholic being inspired by Buddhas and a Buddhist seeing how much Jesus and the Christian tradition has to offer. And 
I think that kind of openness ex is exactly what I'm seeking out in, in, in this book. And as you know, actually, I end the book with a wonderful quotation from the wise Franciscan priest, um, Richard Rohr, who says, the point of life is not to become spiritual, it's to become human. And I think that's almost the conclusion I take from my almost 50 years of travel, which is that when I encounter Kashmir or Belfast or Sri Lanka in the flesh, the beauty of that is I'm meeting something human, not an idea, not a notion of uh, what spiritual life should be, not a theology, but a human who shares much more than I do, um, or shares shares a lot with me and shares much more than is than divides us. Uh, so the inner life is certainly important. And I love Meister Eckhart, the great German mystic of 700 years ago, saying, as long as the inner life is strong, <laughs> the outer life will never be puny. Make a solid foundation inside, and then your 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 relationships, your career, uh, your family life will go much better. So I certainly believe that in a moment of crisis, like the pandemic, my bank account wasn't helping me, and my resume wasn't helping me. The only thing that was helping me was my inner savings account. So in the sense that that's spiritual, it's true. That's the, 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 the Dalai Lama wonderfully says religion is like tea. It gives flavor and savor to life. But what we really can't live without is basic water, which is just kindness. You don't need a text for kindness. You just need to remember yourself that there's a possibility of it. And that may be, in, in, in a more practical sense, I suppose, the only answer that, that makes sense, these, these broader concepts, the only answers that make sense for what divides us today, because we're never going to solve those divisions by arguing with each other. And it's like the, the harder you pull, the, more, the worse the divisions get. Exactly. I, I Yes, precisely. And that is probably the message of this book. I mean, our rational minds and our argumentative minds are only going to get us further into the problem of life. Um, and that part of us that is walking down the street and sees somebody else and responds to her as a human being is is the only way past that. Because again, as with the examples I was mentioning before, ideally we're not, we're not relating to that person in terms of... Um, us versus them or this political party or this religion, we're responding at a, in a human way. And I travel, I think, to save places from abstraction and to try to restore the human component so that North Korea is not just an enemy nation, which of course it is in a practical way, but it's full of 25 million people who probably have as much in common with us as they have apart. In your view, having looked at this and studied this, what is the most powerful force that is that is going against this? What is the, the most powerful force that is fighting all of these positive notions? Tribalism, which is another word for ideology, which is another word for the theories we make about life. And again, my experience is that the world is always so much richer and deeper than our ideas. I sit at home in California and I think about Syria or Iran or Cuba, and I just think about everything that is different from our life. And then I get off the plane in Damascus or Havana or Tehran, and I meet people who are uh, worried about the economy or anxious on behalf of their children or complaining about the government. They sound just like the people around me in California. So again, I feel it's 
my ideas about the world that make for division and argument. And it's the world itself that is always reminding us of our commonalities. And again, during the pandemic, we all had different explanations for things. But deep down, almost everyone on the planet was going through the same kind of fears and anxieties. It comes down in so many ways, it seems, to culture. And yet one doesn't necessarily have to travel to all of these places that you have traveled to in order to grasp these differences and these various aspects of humanity. I mean, a tour through Cleveland and all parts of it, for example, could accomplish a similar thing, it seems. Exactly. And I think that's one of the glories and wonders of my lifetime, which we often take for granted, that the whole globe uh, has come to our doorstep. And just as you say, I know you're not so far from San Francisco. Uh, if you want to hear the stories of Vietnam and listen to the uh, taste the spices of uh, Mexico and hear the uh, tales of Ethiopia, just just get into a cab in San Francisco or just walk across the street. Uh, and again, we neglect the fact that we're sitting on this great opportunity. And, and during the pandemic, when we couldn't travel, I think still our lives had the capacity to be diverse. Is part of the object of the exercise to eliminate or to knock the edges off tribalism or to understand how to get beyond tribalism? You know, I think one of the causes, as everybody notes, is we're getting the world at second hand on our screens. And it's easier than ever before in the age of the internet to be surrounded by people who think like us and feel like us and probably look like us. But as soon as we're out in the world, <laughs> we're wonderfully confronted with everybody uh, and people who are radically different from us. And that's why I try very hard to turn off my machines of every kind and to go and experience the world where I'm not in that flattering and maybe complacent position of being surrounded by people um, who think exactly as I do. And I worry that in this age of small screens, um, we are failing to get that larger picture as we were talking about in the context of, of wisdom and knowledge. Pico Iyer, his new book is The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. Pico, it is always a pleasure. I thank you so very much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. I always enjoy talking to you, and thank you for expressing my book and my vision uh, so perfectly. Thank you, sir.